You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. For more information on the show, visit the Radio Ramadan Glasgow webpage and look out for extended versions of the interviews on mcmuslim.tv, the new online video channel for Scottish Muslims. Our guest today is Sheikh Asim Yusuf. He is unique in that he has a blend of different humanities. He is a highly regarded Islamic scholar who is the founder of the Path to Salvation course in Islamic studies and taught thousands of students over the years. Dr. Asim is also a medical doctor, consultant psychiatrist with a special interest in Islamic spirituality, psychology and mental health. However, he is perhaps most popularly known as the Nasheed singer Talib Al-Habib and has produced numerous albums. Sheikh Asim Yusuf, welcome. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Thank you very much. So we're sitting here in your house in the West Midlands, lovely mint cup of tea. But Sheikh, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a number of years. But yes, you're bef- my senior. You're my senior. <laughs> but before we actually met, I used to hum along to your nasheeds oh, uh, and loved your video, which was one of the early Muslim videos in terms of the whole nasheed scene. How did you be- become involved with nasheeds and singing? I was always involved in singing, I think, from a very young age. I started uh, singing in a choir when I was six years old, actually, the Manchester Boys Choir. And throughout my my life in the UK, which is until 16 years old, I sang in the choir. And one of the last things that I did before I left for South Africa for good was the was the last concert of the year with the choir. When I got to South Africa, there was nothing like that. And I felt, you know, fairly disconnected, I suppose, from the whole thing. But I came to realise that there was... Our religion is poetic and our religion is musical. But what I was uh, exposed to, I suppose, were, were the Urdu language and to a lesser extent I think the Arabic language songs so people know about the Qasida Burda and so forth in this in England it's of in, in England I sorry I should say in the UK it's obviously the Arabic ones are very popular as are the Urdu ones I didn't really understand them I love the tunes I love the harmonies one of my teacher my teacher actually used to sit next to me when they were being read out and he used to whisper the meaning in my ear as I was listening to them and I asked him one day I said you know you know there are these beautiful things but there's nothing in English and he said well don't wait around write them yourself uh, I was a person who used to you know write songs but you know that really turned my attention to writing Islamic songs I think and so I thought about it and I didn't really think much beyond it. There were a couple of things that I wrote down and that was about it. However, I was actually, the, the what got me into it formally, if you like, was funnily enough doing exactly what you're doing now, which is interviewing somebody on the radio, <laughs> interviewing an Ashida artist on the radio for Radio Ramadan. Uh, and I was doing a little Radio Ramadan program and I interviewed Ashki Rasul, the Birmingham uh, the Birmingham Nasheed group, who are very good friends of mine, mashallah, we've remained very good friends over the years. Uh, and we were talking about things and in the break, in one of the breaks, they kind of said, you seem to know a lot about music. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I do a bit of singing. He said, well, you should record some stuff. And I said, oh, no, I don't think I can do that. They said, oh, it's really easy, you know, just book a studio and that's that. So anyway, I went home and I, you know, at that stage I was a person who kind of sing, sing in the shower type stuff. But I told my wife about it and I forgot about it and she didn't forget about it. <laughs> Within a week, she had booked me in a studio. She had booked me recording sessions. And that's where the album Songs of Innocence came from. And you mentioned, um, to take you back, you mentioned about this Manchester Boys Choir. Were there many other uh, Muslims or Asians there? I mean, it's not the run of the mill sort of thing for, I guess families and parents to encourage their kids to get involved so uh, were there many others and how, how was what was your family like when there weren't many others uh, many other Asians certainly and, and I mean certainly where I was growing up it was um, it wasn't a particularly uh, shall we say ethnic area and the school I went to I think there were probably about two or three Muslims in the school and I didn't really know what that meant at that stage anyway but my parents were very, always very encouraging both in terms of academics as well as in terms of extracurricular activities and, and this was one of the things they really encouraged me to and there were kids in the choir you know Asian kids and stuff in the choir but what you found is that probably around the age of eight or nine eight, nine, ten years old, they left, I stayed on. And one of the things that really helped me, and what I encourage young people who are, you know, want to improve their voices and so forth now, is sing through your voice change. And that's one of the things that I did. It's really difficult when a young man's voice changes. And the advice that my teacher gave me is you just keep singing. And that way you strengthen your voice. And that's probably why, you know, came fairly easy to me. Now, songs and music are often a very contentious issue within Muslims. Um, how do you think this medium connects with the soul and perhaps ways other mediums cannot? I'm obviously biased where this is concerned. And I think that as much as we talk about songs and music being contentious, singing isn't contentious. I don't really think there's an issue that any Muslim has with singing. 
even the strictest of them. The contentions are about musical instruments specifically, and which I feel actually is a much more important discussion, is about the content of what you're singing. My, my approach to this uh, has always been that music has a power. Melody and rhythm have a power. They can penetrate into the heart. What is injected into the heart is the lyrics. So any powerful music or any music that you enjoy penetrates the heart. But what then enters the heart on the basis of that is the content of the lyrics. And certainly is also, I think, something about the soul of the one singing. That's why it's really important, actually, in a day and age where we are surrounded by music. Some of the messages are good. I'm not a kind of, oh, all Western music is haram type thing, because some of the content is very good and it's encouraging and inspiring and so forth. But most of it isn't. There's nothing particularly Western about that. That's always been the case. But it's really important, I think, to have music and to support artists who are providing beneficial content and things that will help people to connect to God, to connect to the Prophet and to connect to their religion. So tell us about your first piece that you've chosen. The first piece I've chosen is a slightly unusual one, probably, you know, given the, you know, the, the, the Nasheed stuff and the scholar stuff. It's actually a quote from Lord of the Rings. And it's, it's a part of a longer passage in, in the text. Some people might know it from the movie. Uh, in the movie, it comes when they're in the Mines of Moria. But in the book, it comes much, much earlier. And the quote is... All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And the reason I've chosen that particular quote is because, number one, I think there's a lot of wisdom in it. But more importantly, it's, it's more about the book, The Lord of the Rings, and more generally, I think, about the power of stories. I was very recently asked by the principal of a number of Islamic schools down south. Of course, everything's down south to you guys. You're from Glasgow. But anyhow... Um, and he said, he asked me a question, he said, what, what is the best way to instill moral character in children? And I replied pretty unhesitatingly with one word, and that was stories. I think stories are incredibly powerful. At the moment, my daughter is writing an Islamic historical fantasy story, which actually links in to an Islamic studies curriculum. So the entire Islamic studies curriculum, the wudu and tahara and theology and good character and all that kind of stuff is actually linked in to the story. And as the protagonists go through the story, they will encounter wudu, they will encounter prayer, they will encounter belief in God, belief in the prophets, and all these types of things. It's all woven into the story. And this is actually being taught as we speak. She writes kind of a chapter a week, and a chapter a week is taught, or rather read out, and then the lessons are discussed, and then there is a class around it. And one of the fascinating things that we're finding is that the kids identify so strongly with the protagonists, the male and female protagonists of the story. They really identify very, very strongly with them. And because they identify so strongly with the characters, they identify with their journeys, and therefore they identify with the religion, which is, if like, the backdrop of the journey. So I was telling this, I was telling this principal this, and I said, narratives and stories are part of human existence. From the first human beings, there have been stories, and all cultures have a tradition of storytelling. Even our culture has a tradition of storytelling. It's just storytelling through movies, or even through video games. The reason they are so powerful is because one identifies with the protagonist. And when I was talking to him, I was remembering when I was a young man. And my teacher, over a course of a year, when I was in primary school, read out The Hobbit to us. A little bit each week in the year he completed The Whole of the Hobbit. And I was hooked by this. And then I went on and I read Lord of the Rings. And Lord of the Rings is a difficult read. It's a long book. There are long passages of description. But what I really identified with was Frodo's innocence. And the fact that it was his innocence ultimately that saved him. Sam's courage and loyalty and Aragorn's nobility, Gandalf's wisdom, these four characters, I really identified very, very strongly. And I realise, looking back on my life, how much of an effect it had on me. Innocence, courage, loyalty, wisdom and nobility of character. This had a tremendous effect on me and it shaped, I think, the way I've looked at my life. And many people will say, you know, things have changed now and perhaps focusing on reading and I know there's different ways of storytelling, but perhaps as Muslim communities, maybe we don't read as much as we should or we could, you know. And it's interesting. Do you think there's so much for us to learn in that medium, but also from stories that are not obviously people would say Islamic or, you know, just read about the Sahaba, read about. So do you think there's a lot of wisdom and a lot to learn from actually any stories and novels that are out there? Yes, it is the short answer to that question. I think you can take wisdom, as the Prophet ﷺ said, that wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever they find it, they pick it up. Or wherever you find it, take it in another narration. Yes, I think we don't read enough as a community. But I think that more broadly, we don't engage in stories uh, as, as we should, or in narratives as we should. And yes, there is a great benefit to reading the stories of the Sahaba, but there is a lot more stories in our religion than simply the stories of the Sahaba. Bear in mind, the stories of the Sahaba are not stories, they are histories 
But the difference between a myth and history, between a story and history, is that the story is calibrated to bring out a certain theme. You can find themes in history, but you have to dig deeper. When you are writing a story, when a story is written, it is written to bring out certain themes, certain lessons and moral guidance. So yes, you know, our historical tradition is rich and vast. It's more than just the Sahaba. It's the awliya Allah. It's the, you know, we have many, many history, many, many stories from our history, but there is still a place for fiction writing that is calibrated to bring about themes, lessons, and morals. So I'm imagining when you're growing up in your household, I guess there's music and singing, there's reading and novels. Can you paint us a picture of what life was like in your memories growing up in terms of the household? Alhamdulillah, I had a happy childhood. For the first few years of my life, my father was a doctor, and doctors in those days would have to travel a lot. So we would rarely see my father. One of my very earliest memories is actually driving from London. I was about four, driving from London through the Norfolk Broads to get to Norwich where my dad was working. And I remember what I, the memory is, my mum driving and her telling me, you're the big brother, you need to keep me awake. And we were driving through the fog. But the time with my what my father, he was and is a wonderful father. One of the songs is actually a song about my dad. He, he was a wonderful and is a wonderful father, as is my mother for that matter. He was a very busy person. I think this is important for dads to listen to. He was very busy. He was away from us a lot. But the time he was with us, he was 100% with us. He gave us all of his time. He gave us all of his love. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. And you had siblings? Got one brother, one younger brother. And so when you say there was quality when your dad was with you, what, what sort of things do you mean in terms of what, you, what sort of things would you do together? Or how, what would give you that sense that, you know, dad's giving us all of his attention just now? As a psychiatrist yourself, you, you'll know what I mean when I talk about secure attachment, which for, 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 the, for the listeners is a sense a sense of belonging, a sense of trust. And these are things that come about not because of a particular action or because you take your kids to the park, but because they know that they can trust you and they know that you are there for them. And that's critical. But the memories, uh, I, one of the things that we did as a family was we used to take walks. We lived fairly close to the countryside. And on a Sunday, we used to, it was a fairly regular practice, once every two weeks, three weeks, we would go out for a walk and we would just walk. And they were, in those days, there were no Walkmans even. You know, there, was, there was nothing to distract. No, certainly no phones to distract you. We were just walking along, most of it in silence, spontaneous conversation here and there. And it was a real bonding family experience. The other thing my dad used to do, of course, because he used to work nights a lot of the time, but he used to make sure that he stayed up to videotape the Saturday morning cartoons for us. So we used to be going swimming and that sort of, you know, swimming and cricket and whatever happens, but he would videotape the Saturday morning cartoons. And that's one thing I thanked him for repeatedly over the years. You mentioned the story about your mum telling you to keep her awake through this fog. So did you feel a real sense of responsibility from quite a young age that I guess you were the man of the house? You were there to support mum as well as her to look after you? I think that's a sense of responsibility that came because of the circumstances, but I think it was actively instilled by my parents. My mum used to say to me, once we went to South Africa and we kind of became religious, inverted commas, if you like, my mum used to always apologise to me. She said, oh, I'm sorry I never made you a Hafiz al-Quran. I'm sorry I didn't give you the Islamic education that you need, because my mother was a convert. She converted from Hinduism. And she said, I'm really sorry. And I said, you know something, you gave me something much, much more important than that. You gave me good character. You instilled good character in me. One of those things absolutely was a sense of responsibility. Two boys in the house, two working parents. You know, I would see my dad ironing. Uh, I would see my mum go out to work. You know, as we grew up, we, we would be expected to play a role in the housework. Even to cook on some occasions, my mum would encourage that. That was, yeah, really beneficial. And I, yes, I think I have always, partly to do with my parents, partly to do, as I said, this little Lord of the Rings thing as well. But the idea that you need to look out for people and you need to look after people, I think was a very important part of my upbringing. And we'll talk a bit more about that. Tell us about your next choice. The next choice is, is not a particular excerpt, but it is rhythmic dhikr generally. So it is the it is the the dhikr uh, as you will sometimes hear in well well you will almost inevitably hear in Sufi gatherings and this I encountered really when I went to South Africa when I was sixteen years old and this really brings about memories of my sheikh my first real teacher I think the person who really introduced me to what Islam was and you've mentioned that you've 
lived in different countries. So you've lived in the UK and in South Africa during your upbringing. And so, and I guess you mentioned, which I wasn't aware about your mother as well, converting and stuff. So were there ever issues about identity and belonging and fitting in, I guess, thinking about whether that's a nationality type thing, a British person going to South Africa and then returning, even heritage of your parents and ancestors. Was that ever an issue for you? Or was that something you were, when you were growing up that you toyed with? I'm sure there must have been moments of teenage angst. But I don't really remember them. And I think the reason was I felt so comfortable in my family. Wherever I was, whichever part of the world. I never really felt, and I still, I think, don't feel a part of a particular place or or a particular group. But I didn't really need it. Because the family attachment really supported you, supports one through that. This is thinking back on it, obviously. I was in London until the age of six. When I moved to Manchester, I was kind of a London boy who'd gone to Manchester. And I was pretty much a London boy who'd gone to Manchester for ten years. Then I went to South Africa and I was a British lad in South Africa. <laughs> then I came back here at yeah, 26 and I was <laughs> South African <laughs> living in England. So, so it was... so. I think one of the things that has done is it's allowed me to to transcend notions of needing to belong to a particular group or place or what have you. I consider myself British. I consider myself South African as well. I consider myself Muslim. And I consider myself of Indian heritage. And I don't see any contradiction whatsoever where these are concerned. And one of the one of the important things that I try to do in the teaching and so forth is try to help people overcome you know contradictions and confusions that they have about identity. When you used to change schools. Um... I mean, would you make friends quite easily? Would you fit in? Were you quite a somebody who would naturally fit in and make friends and become a, almost, I guess, I guess at the moment you, you're very much in sort of some sort of teaching and leadership type of roles. Were you that type of person when you were young or were you quite happy in your own company and you just got on with things, I guess? Because often it's that change between schools and countries it can be difficult transitions for some people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was fairly introverted as a young man. I had friends, but it was a, it was always a small circle of friends. I certainly didn't take on leadership roles, and that's, so certainly not in certainly not in school in England. That, I think, began more when I went to South Africa. South Africa was a very big change. I didn't have that much change of school. I mean, there was, you know, as I said, between six and seven, it's, it's not really much. I went into, I think, the second year of primary school, as it was then. My high school years were all in one school. I left after GCSEs, but before sixth form. Fitting in, in South Africa in the last year of school there where I needed to do the last year of school there that was that was a fascinating experience firstly because I went from a boys an all boys school to a mixed school secondly I went from a pretty much white school to an Indian school because that was still kind of the relics of apartheid there was a school that was 98% people of my own my own skin colour which was which was very odd and I was obviously a bit of a celebrity talking dog as it were there with my accent and, and, and what have you and then it was university so I you know yeah, I made friends fairly easily, I think. Yeah. I guess in South Africa, one was, I guess, a significant aspect of your life was you met your spiritual teacher and your guide that you've talked about. And obviously that has influenced the direction you've taken in life as well. Can you just tell us a bit about this person and yeah. who it was and why did he have such an impact on you? I mean, how long you got? But <laughs> yeah. his name was Hazrat Ghulam Muhyiddin Ghazi. I encountered him in a very odd way. Uh, when I went to South Africa... I was, I suppose I would say, a pretty westernised 16, 17-year-old. English is the only language that I spoke and speak. I had grown up primarily among white people. I had known about the religion, but religion for me was Molana's, and I knew that people got beaten up by Molana's, and that was pretty much my... Pretty, and, you know, Juma was somebody talking in a foreign language for 20 minutes, and that was, that was my experience of religion. When I went to South Africa, the type of Islam that was prevalent in the area where I was growing up was a very immersive type of Islam, but at the same time a very strict and a fairly... I, I, would, I think I would say a pretty dry version of Islam. It didn't really do anything for me. Now, I did very well in my final exams in school, and one day we get a call, and my mum puts the phone down, and she says, this is really weird. I said, what happened? She said, there's some Molana from Durban. Now, we lived on the south coast, so we were about an hour away. Some Molana from Durban wants to come and visit us to congratulate you on your exam results. Huh? What? <laughs> Okay. So anyhow, this, this man comes and he's, 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 he's in his 50s. There was obviously something different about him from the moment he, the moment he walked in. I made him a cup of tea. Because that was my job. I used to make people cups of tea. What, what was different? Because people often say that about it's very special difficult. people. It's Is there very, something? Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult to, uh, it's very difficult to put it into words. But you knew instantly. 
There's something different. Mm, no? No. I knew there, there was... I, I'm not a particularly intuitive person. I, I knew something was different, but I didn't know what was different. And that took years, I think, before I realized. And it is the ability to look into a person's soul, which sounds very mystical, but it is actually a hadith of the Prophet Beware the gaze of the believer because they see with the light of God. But I remember the first question I asked him, he said, oh, I hear you've got a lot of questions about Islam. I said, yes, I do. He said, go ahead, ask away. First question I asked was, why do you do Surah Fatiha in the prayer? <laughs> he looked at me and he smiled. And was that actually a question you'd been searching or was you you're kind of testing him a little bit in terms of... No, 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 that was a question that I had. Been that was a question that I had. Pondering. I was trying... And I think the question went to a deeper thing, which is I wanted and I still want, and I think I found many of the answers I was looking for, but I still want to understand the wisdom of the religion. I've always wanted, and what I wasn't getting from the Islam that was around me was the why. What is the wisdom behind these practices and rituals and so forth. The answers, if they came, were pretty superficial answers, didn't satisfy me at all. And he looked at me when I asked him this question. And, oh, I was asking him about something. It was a rit- is a ritual act. And the prayer is the definition of a ritual action and the fact that you read in it. So that's, I think, what I was trying to get at. And he looked at me and smiled and he said, I'll tell you what, why don't you start praying and the answer will come to you, I promise. And at that point, if I'm being honest, I kind of thought, you don't know the answer, do you? <laughs> that's what I thought. But I'll tell you what, it's taken me years. It took me years. But I know why we do Surah Fatiha in the prayer now. And I also know, I have a very good idea, I think, of why the rituals are performed. Why there are so many actions in our religion that, that we that we do in a, in a particular way. And it's because it influences, and I won't use the word soul here, but it influences your personality. It influences your character traits. And it influences the way that you look at things. So in the same way as a cricket player will practice the forward defensive a hundred times, a thousand times, ten thousand times, until it becomes automatic to them and gets them into a particular mindset. Similarly, the actions of prayer and so forth, practice them repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly, and they get you into a particular mindset. And I've actually just really recently finished doing an intensive on the inner dimensions of prayer. Really ended up focusing very much on the diff- on the relationship between the physical acts of the prayer, the verbal utterances of the prayer, and the spiritual inward dimensions or the, the states that one gleans in prayer. And really, that's the answer to the question that I asked my sheikh. Oh, 25 years ago. Mm. So tell us about your next item you've chosen. The next item is um, is, is, is song that my sheikh wrote. He was a very poetic person. He wrote in Urdu and he wrote a song uh, called Harsas Ye Kehdi Hai, which is, it is, a, it is an ode of yearning for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And really, I think I've chosen that because, again, of this connection between music, the poetic beauty of the religion, and the ability of, especially the devotion towards the Prophet, peace and blessings upon him, to inspire the human soul. The Prophet, peace and blessings upon him, really is the foundation of the religion. Um, and connection to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, especially in the times where our religion is really under attack, both from the outside and from the inside. And the, in- the attacks from the inside, the attempts to misrepresent the nature of our religion, but and, and therefore the nature of the Prophet وسلم, are some of the worst, the worst attacks, I think, on the religion. One of the things that I have to deal with, and it is an honor to deal with it, but it is, a, it is very sad at the same time, is people who have harbor very, very deep doubts about Islam. Uh, who are considering leaving Islam. My sort of scholarly friends will often refer people like that to me to speak to. And what I found invariably is that it is the image of the religion that they have been, uh, they have come to see around them. Whether that be, you know, family relationships, the you know, this Maulana, that Maulana, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, whatever it happens to be, acts of oppression that Muslims do on each other. And they've come to ask themselves the question, well, is this religion for me? And fundamentally, although yes, you can give very scholarly answers to aspects of it. The fundamental answer to this question is go back to the character of the Prophet This is rahmatan lil alameen. This is a person who comforted a palm tree when it was weeping out of separation from him. This is a person who left a campaign, a military campaign in order to rescue the eggs of a mother bird that had been stolen from her nest. This is a person who famously diverted the entire army at the conquest of Mecca 
diverted the course of the army because there was a pregnant dog giving birth and the Prophet did not want the dog to be disturbed, didn't want that mother dog to be frightened when it was nursing its newborn pups. Is this the type of person that you think would countenance oppression, cruelty, anything that would that would cause a human soul grief? Once you can grasp the character of the Prophet and the nature of the Prophet a lot of this religion starts to look very, very different. And they say that the scholars are the inheritors of the prophets and I guess this, do, don't they? this <coughs> scholar that you obviously had a very close attachment to I guess summarize I guess from that first cup of making him tea and that first question you know how was that how did that relationship pan out over years and I think decades my my sheikh I met him when I was 17 he passed away two years ago so I've known him my entire adult life and I've had very close contact with him even when I was in the UK I would go back once or twice a year to South Africa specifically to spend time with him although my whole family were there but specifically to spend time with him I would be in weekly contact with him on the phone when I talk about the character of the Prophet the reality is you don't get this from books you can't appreciate character personality from books it's something that needs to be experienced you can read about mercy but when you are the recipient of mercy you understand it in a completely different light and it was actually my sheikh who explained this to me when he was talking about some of the stuff and he said look at an orange he said you can measure the orange you can weigh the orange you can test the ph of the orange you can learn everything there is to know about the orange but you won't know what an orange is until you eat it you have to taste these things and this is this case when it comes to awe of Allah when it comes to desire for God when it comes to love when it comes to fear hope grief joy these things have to be experienced and this is the core of what the religion is and I experienced these characters of the prophets these characteristics of the prophet with my teacher and is there a particular image that you think of when you think about your time with him is there any standout moment or moments that I mean there, there are many but I'll tell you one he said to me once and I really can't overstate the impact he had on my life but he said to me once he said do you know what the secret of this all is do you know what it's all do you want to know what it's all about and I said yeah I do he said are you sure he said, I said, no, I really, I really do. What's, what is the meaning of life? Life, the universe and everything. What's it all about? He said, I'll tell you. Come close, but you got to come close. And he was standing outside his grandfather's house, actually. Uh, his grandfather had passed away, but he was, sta- he was standing there. He said, come closer, closer, closer. And I came right up to him. And then he hugged me. And he just held me. He didn't, say any, he didn't say a word. He just hugged me. Then he let me go. And he said, that's the secret. And that's the, I think, the defining image of my sheikh. It is about love. It is about compassion. It is about connection. And everything is about this. Had you allowed me, I would have put a Beatles track on, on here. And that Beatles track is all you need is love. Because that's what it comes down to ultimately. And it sounds like that relationship was almost like a father and son relationship for you and for him. It was a father and son relationship for me. It was funnily enough, it was a father and son relationship for my father with him, actually. So my father also was his student. I'll tell you what, the relationship was a very close relationship. And I know that there were people who did con- very much consider him to be their father. I always considered him my teacher, a very beloved teacher, but, but a teacher. Of course, there is an element. The Prophet said this, actually. He said to the Sahaba, I am like a father to you. Uh, and he said, I teach you things that you that nobody else will teach you. So so this is this is the nature of the relationship, but it never impacted on my actual relationship with my father. There's there's a barakah in that, I think. That, you know, that, that we had a very close relationship. In fact, I was talking to my dad recently and he was he was talking about how much he misses. Mm. How much he misses my teacher. And do you think he treated you like a son? Yes, yes. He he treated me like a son, but he also treated me, I think, like a protege. There was discipline when I needed discipline, which was a lot of the time. <laughs> you know. And am I right in saying when he did pass away, you, you flew and you went across? I, can, I remember around that time. Yeah, yes, yeah. I did. Was that almost a, you didn't have to think about it? Because no. you were here, obviously, and he was in South Africa. Uh, the, only, the only thing I had to think about was was the fact that uh, as close as, as close to him as I was, my family and some of his students from the UK were close to him. My, 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 my wife, knew, I knew him from the age of 17. My wife knew him from the age of 10. My children have known him all their lives. He had the adhan in their ears. You know, he, they, they pulled out hairs from his beard when they, were, when they were three months old. And, you know, so the only hesitation was, do I actually need to be here to support the people in this country? But it was really a no-brainer. Uh, I heard the news at 12.30. I was on a flight at 8pm. May Allah grant him the highest status Amin. in Jannah and Amin. inshallah all the good works from the students that he's taught may he benefit from that inshallah. Tell us about your next item. Uh, the next item, I'm not sure I'm allowed to do this but it's one of my own songs. <laughs> uh, it's uh, Songs of Innocence which was the first song that I wrote, the first Islamic song that I wrote really. This song when I hear it it, it very much makes me think about my family. Uh, it's written for my children but really written as though uh, it really I think encapsulates 
the, the wishes of every parent for their child. And when I was writing it, I was half thinking about what my hopes and fears for my children, but I was at the same time thinking about the way I'd grown up and my parents and their, the hopes and fears they must have had for me. You, you have two daughters? Yes, two daughters. And you had both of them at the time? Or was it one of the one child you had at the time when you wrote this? Both. So you were both, both in the yeah, wrote. They, were, they were both around at the time. Okay. They're both, they're both in the music, they're both in the video. <laughs> and I sing my songs of innocence to you, my precious child, as you lay on your bed with your sleepy eyes and your heavy head. Rest and dream in peace till morning comes again. I will sing my songs of innocence. I will sing my songs of innocence. Allahu. So, Sheikh, in parallel with your Islamic learning, you're training to be a medical doctor and specialise in psychiatry and mental health. People often find the bridge between arts and science quite a difficult one to traverse. Is there an obvious overlap in your own mind that made you choose psychiatry? I think medicine is an art as much as it is a science. Actually, I would say the same for Islamic studies as well. It is as much of an art as it is a science. I actually find the distinction between the two false one. How did I get into psychiatry? Well, I fell into it by mistake, but I'm glad that I did. Um, I never thought, I'd, when I was training in South Africa as a doctor, I never thought I'd be a psychiatrist. I thought I'd probably be a paediatrician, actually. But uh, I, I had uh, one too many child die in my arms of AIDS-related conditions in South Africa, and I just couldn't do it. The reason I came back to England is that I was offered a locum job. Uh, and I thought, yeah, why not? You know, let's see what it's all about. Uh, we, had, we had a young family. It was myself, my wife, and my, my two kids were, I think, three and one at the time. And we thought, well, hey, let's travel the world. You know, let's work, work and move around the world, as you do. <laughs> Didn't get further than England as it <laughs> happened. But uh, it was a job in psychiatry. I came into it and found I really liked it. And so I thought I'd, I'd uh, you know, specialise in it. One of the things I think that I really appreciated about it was that a lot of the a lot of the stuff I'd learned about our religion, especially the the inner dimensions side of things, the spirituality, the really had a parallel in psychology. A lot of what is called Islamic spirituality isn't really kind of mystical magic uh, when God when what is it when Guardium Leviosa type stuff. It is um, it, it's very much psychology. It is deeply psychological. Our religion is when Allah talks about this is a religion of fitrah. One way of translating that is this is a religion that is in tune with human psychology. So I found that there were lots of parallels between the two and hence it was very easy for me to get into the psychiatry stuff but also at the same time to help me understand the Islamic component through the psychiatric studies but the psychiatric studies through the Islamic understanding of human nature. So they parallel each other very well. And so how do you think that filters down in terms of the understanding of mental health in the Muslim community in terms of the masses? Because often people say there's a conflict there, there's a real lack of understanding. So I guess, how does the Muslim community in the UK tend to understand mental health, do you think? And are there issues around the understanding of mental health and how they deal with things? Yeah, I think things, my experience is that things are slowly getting better. Uh, but but there, there is, a, I mean, look, there is. let's be clear, there is a real deficit of understanding mental health in in the community at large and when I say community I mean the human community up to now you know people have quite great difficulty understanding then you know you will get this from people born and bred in this country you know you know white as white as they come uh, who, who you know who, who will get this well why can't you just snap out of it type thing so there is a problem understanding mental health because it doesn't really leave a mark it can't be measured where the Muslim community is concerned we suffer from a number of issues one is a language barrier especially for the older people in the community, this is a huge thing. The second is that psychiatry and the understanding of mental health is very Eurocentric. It is based on a very particular model of human psychology, which came about in the 17th and 18th century in, in, in Europe, which traditional you know, cultures, Eastern cultures and so forth, don't share, which means that at some level, it, you know, when, when people are talking about psychodynamic theory and what have you, it just doesn't, it doesn't ring true to, to many people. From a Muslim community specifically, I think the other issue is is the relationship of the mind to the soul, if you're being specific about it. Is this an affliction of my mind or is this an affliction of my soul? 
If it is an affliction of my mind, what is my mind in comparison to my soul? And most people will say, well, actually, it's the same thing, which means a mental illness is a spiritual illness. Because people will say they're mentally unwell because of a weakness of faith or iman, isn't it? And that's where you get this notion, exactly where you get this notion, that if I'm spiritually unwell, or if you are spiritually unwell, then clearly there is a problem with your iman. Hence, you've gone from a depression or a psychosis to this person is not a good enough Muslim. Which is one thing when people are telling you that. When you internalize it and you start to believe that you're not a good enough Muslim, that becomes extremely problematic. That's that's a real issue. And then that will lead to issues of how you treat the issue because then yeah, well, the treatment is a spiritual one rather than... Then, then that's the other issue, which is the, you know, the, we don't just believe in God and the hereafter, we believe in the unseen. And the unseen includes angels and jinn and, and what have you. And especially when it comes to jinn, number one, to black magic or sihr, jadu, number two. And the other is athar or ayn or nazar. What is the relationship of these things to mental health? Now, I say this to people, and I'll, I'll kind of break it down and make it very very easy, because again, this is something I could talk about, we could have a whole hour and a half on this, easy. But in a nutshell, when people come to me, the question they often ask is, is this a mental Ill- illness, or is it Jin Jadu Zihr? And I have a big problem with that statement. And the problem I have with that statement specifically is the word or. Why does it have to be this or that? Why can't that be a factor that leads to mental distress? Okay. You will know this, you, you and I both know this, that the diagnoses that we give are not based on a cause. They're not etiological diagnoses. They are syndromes. If you have a cluster of symptoms for a certain period of time, this is your diagnosis. What caused that particular manifestation of, is, from a diagnosis perspective, neither here nor there. From a treatment perspective, it's critical, however. Is this a biological thing? Is it about the chemicals in your brain and the way your neurons are firing? Is it about trauma you've had in your life and how you cope with things? Is it about current circumstances and situations? You and I will have trained such that we take all of those things into consideration. Hence, the treatment is there is a biological element, which is medication and so forth. There is a psychological element, which is therapy. There is a social element, which is usually benefits. (laughs) Signing off on people's (laughs) benefits. From a Muslim perspective, there's no problem with any of those three, but there's a fourth one. The fourth one is the spiritual element of it. And that should simply be a factor along with the other three. And therefore, there should be one of the options for treatment is, you know, whether it's a raqi, whether it's, you know, reading certain verses of the Quran, whether it's actually understanding from an Islamic psychological perspective what is happening. So, for example, why is my life the way it is? A reactive depression. Why is my life the way it is? What did I do wrong is God punishing me, you know, and, and so forth. So these are things that need to be tackled. It'd be very difficult for a Western-trained psychotherapist, even to some extent a Muslim one, to deal with the question of, is God angry with me? Because that's a theological question. It's not a psychological question. So take us to your next item that you've chosen. The next one is a quote from Rumi. And the quote is, you've been a rock for too long now. Crumble yourself and wildflowers will spring up at your feet. Try something different. Surrender. So you'll have to explain to us, I guess, what the meaning of that is or what. This is very much links in, I think, to the to the work, the, the mental health work that I do. I remember a, 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 one of my friends became a scholar. He's, he is a religious scholar, but he was appointed to, you know, an important post. And I asked him, I met him, you know, and these guys are really busy, but I met him one day and I said, how are things going? You know, he said, it's really hard. He said, you know, I thought people would come to ask me for fatwas on this and fatwas on that. They don't. It's all about marriage problems and mother-in-law problems. And I started laughing at him and I said, welcome, welcome, marhaba, marhaba. What did you think it was going to be about? <laughs> one, of the, one of the major roles of a, of, of, of a, of a religious scholar is, is actually to counsel people. Okay. Because people are in difficult positions in their life. It's very difficult to fly when you've got lead weights attached to your feet. It's very difficult to grow spiritually when you have traumas, emotional trauma that you have to deal with and process. The way that people often try to deal with trauma is that they harden. They become hard. This is why abused people become abusers. You harden. You become a rock. I think people try to make themselves rocks. When they become rocks, they become unfeeling. Both to other human beings suffering, but also to the the whisper of God, to the inspirations from God. And what Rumi is 
touching on a very deep psychological point, which is that the response to trauma, the, the rock response to trauma, is often the wrong response. Now, this ha- I have to be very careful about how I say this, but there is a different response, and that response is to crumble. What Rumi is talking about here, of course, is that rocks that are made up of clumps of earth that have hardened, and that's a very good description of the heart. The heart is earth. Things grow from it. Your character traits grow, grow from your heart, from your soul. When rocks clump, if you garden, nice garden, you know, which I don't get out into enough, but when you have clumps of rock, nothing will gl- grow from that clump of rock. You need to crumble the rock. You crumble it in your fingers. Then you find things grow. And what Rumi is saying here is, the reason there is this response is because you feel that you have to deal with this yourself. You don't have to deal with it yourself. Allah is there for you. Allah is there with you. Allah is there protecting you. Surrender to God and he will process the pain. He will process the trauma. And then you will find that things grow from you. Are there parallels perhaps with the story of Prophet peace be upon him? And I guess one one of his lowest points was after Daif and Isra Miraj. It's something about breaking before growing in terms of yeah, even in the Sira, do you think? I think absolutely. I think, you know, I, I, I taught the Sira about a year ago, and we took a year, actually, to, to go through the whole of the Sira because we really took a good analytical look at it. And one of the things I used to tell the students quite often is that, yes, okay, where the Prophet Sallallahu is concerned, to imagine yourself in the place of the Prophet Sallallahu that there's, there's occasionally theological issues with that. However, imagine yourself in the place of the Sahaba. If you want to really understand the Prophet Sallallahu you want to understand how this religion came about, you have to put yourself there. It's no good just reading about it. You have to put yourself there. And putting yourself there means opening yourself up to the emotions that you would have felt as a normal human being in that circumstance. One of the great glories of the Prophet, peace and blessings upon him, is that he was fully human. He was not a robot or some kind of, you know, mythical Zen Buddhist master who, who, who everything just washed over and he just wasn't affected by anything. He was deeply affected by things in his life. He deeply felt. I mean... The, the, the year of Ta'if, which was also the year of the ending of the boycott, which was also, yes, you're right, at the end of the year, there was the, 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 the Mi'raj. Um, but that year, uh, in that, that was the year in which Sayyidah Khatija died. That was the year in which Abu Talib died. And it was called the year of sadness. He called it, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the year of sadness, because it was very, very difficult for him. The thing I like to focus on, yes, the, 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 the Mi'raj was a, a transformative and transcendent experience at the end of it. Um, but if you look at inverted commas, what was the Mi'raj? Why did it happen then specifically? There was a breaking of the Prophet. There was, or rather, I should not breaking is the wrong word, but certainly a crumbling of the Prophet that occurred through this year. All these hardships and persecutions that not just he, it wasn't him specifically, it was those around him, those whom he loved, the hardships that they were going through. The Prophet again, from a mental health type perspective, if you like, was a carer. He was in the last year, the last few weeks and months of Sayyidah Khadija's life, he was caring for her. The burden, you and I know it's the burden on carers, the burden on people who are dealing with family members who have illnesses and so forth. It's a tremendous burden. The Prophet bore that burden. The Prophet was a single parent when Sayyidah Khatija died before he remarried, it was a year. He was a single parent. He actually describes in the seerah that he was cooking for the family and he, they were being persecuted. And somebody threw the intestines of a sheep through the window and it fell into the cooking pot. But who was cooking? The Prophet was cooking, though he had, now bear in mind, he had adult daughters. He had daughters who were married, but they were in their own family homes. He was looking after his family. You know, I've never heard that perspective, I guess, mm-hmm. of being, you know, that, which, as you say, is so true, isn't it, as a single parent and how he coped with that. So you know? the Prophet, yeah. you know, we did, it, we have a program called the Winter Spring Maulids, which is 12 nights in the beginning of Rabi'l Awal, where we all gather together and, we, you know, we do some zikr and we sing some songs and we have talks and, and we have talks around a theme, different scholars coming and delivering talks around a theme. The talk in the Rabi'l Awal just passed was... Uh, the, the, the previous one, I should say, was the roles of the Prophet So the Prophet as parent, the Prophet as teacher, the Prophet as student, the Prophet as a diplomat, and so forth. But there are many of these roles that the Prophet had that, that you that you don't you don't think about necessarily. As I say, as a single parent, as a carer, as a widower. You know, the Prophet inhabited all of these roles as a grandfather, for that matter. There's much to learn. Mm much to learn from the life of the Prophet but specifically this instance that you know the, the year of sadness as you say 
the thing I always come back to, and if you like, the thing, you know, human beings make causal links, sometimes where there aren't any links to be made, but the, 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 the causal link that I make between what happened and there was the Mi'raj was actually the dua that the Prophet made at Ta'if, where he said that he completely, to, how did he respond to being abused, being persecuted, being attacked, being chased out of the city, and so forth? How did he respond to that? In the heat of the moment, and this is the real thing, it's not a dua that he made a week later, it was in the heat of the moment while he was still bleeding, while he was puffing and panting, having run down the mountain of Ta'if. What did he say? And when he makes this du'a, he says, I seek refuge in the light of your countenance. The, the thing about this du'a is you find the humanity of the Prophet ﷺ, the natural response to what he's experienced. Oh God, what has become of me? Where have I had to go? You know, who will look after me? To these far people, you know, to my own people who will try to kill, to try to assault me, to these far off people who will humiliate me. This is a natural response, but he's, he's com he, it is a complaint. And this is the thing. It is a complaint to God. It's not a complaint about God. There's no problem complaining to God. Oh Allah, what's going on? And in the dua, you see it's like Allah is answering him as he's making the dua. Because he goes from this, you know, you know, I, to you I complain of my weakness, my lack of you know, strength, my lack of allies. The fact I've got no way out. Where will I turn? And then he says, I seek refuge in the light of your countenance that illuminates all things and leaves no darkness. If you are not displeased with me, then I do not care what happens to me. And this is the surrender. This is the crumbling and the surrender. And straight after that, Jibreel comes to him, or rather just before that, Jibreel comes to him and says to him, we've seen what happened. Allah has sent me to you. And he has sent me with the angel of the mountains of Ta'if. And he has told me that you give the word and these mountains will smash together and destroy the people of Ta'if. What would the rock response be? Go for it. Yeah? What did the Prophet say? And this is, again, there's a great wisdom in what he said. And it's, firstly, it parallels the f most famous thing that Isa alayhi salam said, or the four Christians. The most famous thing that Jesus said was, for, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do when he was on the cross in Christian theology. From our perspective, we have the Prophet salam. In that situation, what does he say? Oh Allah, forgive my people. They know not what they do. This is exactly the same thing. And then he says, maybe from their offspring, their children or their grandchildren will come a people who will worship Allah. And that's something that we in this country need to understand. The Prophet ﷺ, even in that circumstance, was playing the long game. Although he had very serious things to take care of at the moment, which was that there was nobody to look after the Muslim community, to give protections, how it worked in those days. There's nobody to give protection to the Muslim community in Mecca. This is why they went on Hijrah, eventually, all right? But he's gone to Ta'if for a reason. He's not going to do da'wah. He's not just going to do da'wah to the people of Ta'if. He needs protection for the Muslims, okay? So he has something very important and urgent to take care of, but that doesn't stop him from thinking about 100 years' time, 200 years' time. We in this country, not, we don't think, oh, I spoke to my neighbor about Islam, and they didn't listen to me, and now forget it. They are, you know, that's it. Think about the Prophet Wasallam. What is he thinking about? He's thinking of generations down the line. You know, so there's a great wisdom in all of this. But you see this dua is a transcendent dua. You go from humanity to spirituality. And you see both aspects of the Prophet And we can recognize both of these aspects in our own lives. I think that's really fascinating, Sheikh Asim. So take us to your next item. The next item is a hadith of the Prophet And it is, it is called, it has become known as the hadith that is the advice of the scholars of Damascus or the advice of the scholars of Syria. And this is a hadith that when you are studying in Syria, which I, my scholarly heritage is very much a Syrian heritage, but I, I'm not somebody who has spent a long time studying in Syria. But those who have been there, and what I experienced when I went there for the short time I was there, is that when you leave, you go, it's adab that you go to the scholars and you ask them for advice. And it is a tradition there, and Allah give its, give its people a lot of, you know, give them ease and, you know, allow them to come out of this dreadful situation that they're in and bring them peace. Because it was a really beautiful, it was a beautiful place, and there were there are a beautiful people. But the advice that was given, uh, that the, the 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 scholars give to the students is this hadith of the Prophet which is That is to say, be conscious of Allah, have taqwa for Allah wherever you are. Follow up 
a harmful act with a blessed one in order to wipe it out and treat people with the best of character. And this is a really encompassing hadith of the Prophet, which is why it has become this piece of advice that is given to, to students by these scholars. The first part really describes an ideal. Ideally, be aware that Allah is with you, wherever you are and whatever you are doing. This works in two ways. If you're thinking of doing something wrong, then knowing that Allah is with you will prevent you from doing it. Uh, if you are thinking of doing something right, knowing that Allah is there will purify your intention. If you are thinking, if you are in a joyful or happy or blessed situation, knowing that Allah, being conscious that Allah is there will allow you to be thankful to Allah. And if you're in a difficult situation or difficult circumstance, knowing that Allah is there will allow you to seek comfort from God and strength from God's presence. So that's a very powerful thing. But that's not what I like about the hadith. I like the second bit. And that's really where the where the, the very practical nature of our religion comes in. Because it would be great if we all did that. If we all did that, we'd all be awliya Allah. And the world would be a better place. But we can't. We often forget that Allah is there and we end up doing wrong things. And the fact that our religion takes cognizance of the fact that we will do, we will mess up. We're going to, you know, especially when it comes to human relationships, we're going to screw up all the time. What do you do? Do something to rectify it quickly. You've said something cruel to somebody. Apologize. Say they're nice to them. You've, you've let somebody down. Make it up to them. And do it immediately. Don't wait. Don't let it solidify. Don't let it fester. So the fact that our religion takes into consideration that we are going to do things wrong. and But if you do, this is how you make it up. You know? That's, I think, a very powerful and a very useful thing. And then the last element of the hadith is treat people with the best of character. Okay. Um, which I think is very, very important. Some very valuable advice for the listeners. Tell us about your next item that you've chosen. Uh, the next item is, sorry, again, another song of mine. Because my songs are often, I think the reason I'm choosing them is they, they do mirror aspects of you know my life. I wrote them under certain circumstances. And it's called Al-Habib. And this really is about the Prophet wasallam, And it's about what it means to follow the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. Uh, I've said to my family that, you know, you know, when I die and you, um, you know, if you want to put a gravestone, right? If you want to put something on the gravestone, put this on the gravestone. Because it's advice about what it means to follow in the footsteps of the Prophet And it's not simply about actions. It is about the state, the inward state of the Prophet It's about his humility. It's about his compassion, about his wisdom, about his consolation, about his courage and so forth. It's all of these qualities that the Prophet ﷺ embodied and qualities that have been embodied in the in the holy and saintly people of every generation from the time of the Prophet ﷺ right down to present day. If there is a way in which Islam has been transmitted, it has been transmitted in the hearts of people. It's been transmitted in the good character and the saintly qualities of people. And I think it's really, really important that the f our focus becomes about being good people rather than being people that do good things. If you are a good person, you will naturally do good things. If you are a flawed person, it takes a tremendous effort of will to do something good. If we focus, we all can focus on being good people. That's all it's about. It's not hard. Be good. You know, as a uh, um, there was an old movie I watched when I was a kid and the, the, the catchphrase of the movie was be excellent to each other and that's really what it comes down to Ahsinu Ahsinu inna muhsinin be good Allah loves the good Yeah.
So Sheikh Azam, as we come towards the end of our time together, um, tell us about your last item that you've chosen to take with you. The last item, the last uh, item is another a verse of Quran to, to finish off with a verse of Quran, and it is Senurihim ayatina fil afaqi wa fi anfusihim hatta yatabayin alhum annahu alhaq. Soon we will show them our signs in the farthest reaches of the heavens and within themselves until it becomes clear to them that this is the truth. Our life ultimately is a journey to God. But it is a journey to God, for God, and a journey to God, for God, with God. And I think this is the critical thing. It's the last thing that most of us forget about. That you are, as the hadith mentions, Allah is with you. He's with you with his knowledge. He's with you with his mercy and so forth. It's for us to decipher the signs that he has left for us. And the signs are are all around us and also within us. I've just finished writing a book on prayer times. You know, how to deal with, especially twilight, Fajr and Isha prayer times in in, in summer. We all have this problem in in Ramadan. What time is Seri and what time can we read Isha and so forth. And I've written a, I think, a work called Shedding Light on the Dawn. It's a fairly comprehensive um, work that covers all of these topics. This is the tagline. Uh, and there's a very particular reason um, that, it, that I've used this one, which is explained in the book. But I think more broadly, if we can see and we can understand and feel the signs of Allah, both those signs around us, as well as those signs within ourselves, this journey starts to make a lot more sense. And we are much more heedful of our purpose. I sometimes tell my students and so forth that when we are when you when you're on a journey to London, let's say, you know, you're gonna drive you're driving down on the motorway and you think, you know, you sometimes you think, Am I going in the right direction? You know. What do you see? You'll see a signboard and it says, you know, London, you know, two hundred miles that way. You know, turn this way and so forth. These are signs. And the signs are there number one to remind us about where we're going, but also to point the way to us. And thirdly, very importantly, to give us a sense of a sense of reassurance that we are drawing nearer. These signs are with us. The outward signs we sometimes think about great massive things like, oh yes, when you look at the sunset and you look at the sunrise and isn't it amazing? And yes, these things are amazing and these things affect us. The signs of Allah around us are in everyday things. It might be a passing word that somebody said to you. It might be a billboard that you saw. It might be something that you heard on the radio. These are Allah. God is the Lord of creation. And God can speak through to us through any of his creation. You've got to be aware. You've got to be listening out for what message Allah is giving you. Hassan al-Basri, great early, um, a great early Muslim, he was asked once, how did you attain good character? And he said, I learnt good character from bad people. I said, what do you mean? He said, people treated me with bad character. And I saw how it felt. I saw how it made me feel, and I realized that this is wrong. So I resolved not to do that to other people. So even somebody treating you badly is a sign from Allah, because the way that it makes you feel is an indication to you that is sometimes more powerful than the hadith or a Quranic verse, indicating to you that this is a wrong thing. So don't do it to others. And that's the signs inside you. It's The signs outside you are things that you hear and see and so forth, the signs within you are your feelings and your emotions, your happiness, your sadness, your grief, and so forth. All of these things are ways in which Allah speaks to us. And if we can understand that and rec- and recognize it, if we can see the signs of our Lord in the farthest reaches of the heavens and within ourselves, it will become clear to us that this is indeed the truth, that we are on a journey to our Lord, for our Lord, with our Lord, and we will remember our purpose and it makes the journey a lot easier. So you get to take with you a copy of the Quran and you have the opportunity to take a book with you. What book would you take with you? And that's a really difficult question <laughs> because there are so many uh, there, there are so many books. I'm, I, I'm assuming I'm going to be on this island for quite a long time. Absolutely. And I'm assuming I'm going to be alone. So it's not nice to be alone. But if I'm going to be alone, it's a nice opportunity to to devote myself to coming to know my Lord so that I'm not alone. And I think the book that uh, that is uh, long enough to uh, occupy me for a long time, <laughs> uh, as well as profound enough to, uh, to, to, make, it, to make that difference, to, 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 to bring those insights about, but also penetrating enough 
to cover all the aspects of my life that I need that I need to focus on is the Ihyalumuddin of Imam Ghazali. So I'm teaching it at the moment, and it's. Uh, I say I say I'm not teaching it actually. I, I say I say to the students sometimes I'm not teaching. We are being taught by Imam Ghazali. Uh, I'm just the one reading out the text, uh, but it is it is real education, and it and it is so broad and encompassing, and it has. It is filled with such penetrating insights about the human condition. And there are many books like this, but this is long. So I know it'll take me 10 years to get <laughs> Keep through. Keep you busy. Yeah. And if you could take a luxury item, is there anything that you, know, you have, have to take? I have absolutely no idea what luxury... You know, whenever I hear Desert Island Discs, I think, what luxury <laughs> item would I take? And I'm really boring. I'm just going to say a perpetual tea maker. <laughs> <laughs> so Sheikh Asim, thank you so much for your time. And we wish you all the best. Inshallah, we'll continue to make dua for you. And you make dua for us as well, Inshallah. I mean, I will, of course. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems. Let us know what you think of the show on the Radio Ramadan Facebook page and keep an eye out for special versions of the show on mcmuslim.tv. For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app. 